Reminiscences of Samuel Taylor Coleridge and Robert Southey by Joseph Cottle Read for LibriVox.org by Rachel Linton, Bristol, UK To account for my introduction to all the persons subsequently noticed, it is necessary to apprise the reader that I was a bookseller in Bristol from the year 1791 to 1798 from the age of twenty-one to twenty-eight, and having imbibed from my tutor and friend, the late John Henderson, one of the most extraordinary of men, some little taste for literature, I found myself during that period generally surrounded by men of cultivated minds. With these preliminary remarks I shall commence the narrative. At the close of the year 1794, a clever young man of the Society of Friends of the name of Robert Lovell, who had married a Miss Fricker, informed me that a few friends of his from Oxford and Cambridge, with himself, were about to sail to America, and on the banks of the Susquehanna, to form a social colony, in which there was to be a community of property, and where all that was selfish was to be proscribed. None, he said, were to be admitted into their number, but tried and incorruptible characters, and he felt quite assured that he and his friends would be able to realise a state of society free from the evils and turmoils that then agitated the world, and to present an example of the eminence to which men might arrive under the unrestrained influence of sound principles. He now paid me the compliment of saying that he would be happy to include me in this select assemblage, who, under a state which he called Pantisocracy, were, he hoped, to regenerate the whole complexion of society, and that not by establishing formal laws, but by excluding all the little deteriorating passions, injustice, wrath, anger, clamour, and evil speaking, and thereby setting an example of human perfectibility. Young as I was, I suspected there was an old and intractable leaven in human nature that would effectually frustrate these airy schemes of happiness, which had been projected in every age and always with the same result. At first the disclosure so confounded my understanding that I almost fancied myself transported to some new state of things, while images of patriarchal and pristine felicity stood thick around, decked in the rainbow's colours. A moment's reflection, however, dissolved the insubstantial vision when I asked him a few plain questions. "'How do you go?' said I. My young and ardent friend instantly replied, We freight a ship, carrying out with us ploughs and other implements of husbandry. The thought occurred to me that it might be more economical to purchase such articles in America, but not too much to discourage the enthusiastic aspirant after happiness. I forbore all reference to the accumulation of difficulties to be surmounted, and merely inquired who were to compose his company. He said that only four had as yet absolutely engaged in the enterprise. Samuel Taylor Coleridge from Cambridge, in whom I understood the plan to have originated, Robert Southey, and George Burnett from Oxford, and himself. 
Well, I replied, when do you set sail? He answered very shortly, I soon expect my friends from the universities when all the preliminaries will be adjusted, and we shall joyfully cross the blue waves of the Atlantic. But, said I, to freight a ship and sail out in the high style of gentlemen agriculturalists will require funds. How do you manage this? We all contribute what we can, said he, and I shall introduce all my dear friends to you immediately on their arrival in Bristol. Robert Lovell, though inexperienced and constitutionally sanguine, was a good specimen of the open frankness which characterises the well-informed members of the Society of Friends, and he excited in me an additional interest from a warmth of feeling and an extent of reading above even the ordinary standard of the estimable class to which he belonged. He now read me some of the MS poems of his two unknown friends, which at once established their genius in my estimation. My leisure having been devoted for many years to reading and composition, and having a small volume of poems at that time in the press, I anticipated great pleasure from an introduction to two poets who superadded to talents of a higher order all the advantages arising from learning, and a consequent familiarity with the best models of antiquity. Independently of which they excited an interest, and awakened a peculiar solicitude from their being about so soon to leave their fatherland, and to depart permanently for a foreign shore. One morning shortly after, Robert Lovell called on me, and introduced Robert Southey. Never will the impression be effaced produced on me by this young man, tall, dignified, possessing great suavity of manners, an eye piercing, with a countenance full of genius, kindliness, and intelligence. I gave him at once the right hand of fellowship, and to the moment of his decease, that cordiality was never withdrawn. I had read so much of poetry, and sympathised so much with poets and all their eccentricities and vicissitudes, to see before me the realisation of a character which, in the abstract, most absorbed my regards, gave me a degree of satisfaction which it would be difficult to express. I must now make a brief reference to George Burnett, who in this epidemic delusion had given his sanction to, and embarked all his prospects, in life on this Pantisocrator scheme. He was a young man about the age of twenty, the son of a respectable Somersetshire farmer, who had bestowed on him his portion by giving him a university education as an introduction to the church, into which he would probably have entered but for this his transatlantic pursuit of happiness. His talents were not conspicuous, but his manners were unpresuming, and honesty was depicted on his countenance. He possessed also that habitual good temper and those accommodating manners which would prove a desirable accession in any society. And it soon appeared, without indicating any disrespect, that his was a subordinate part to act in the new drama, and not the less valuable for its wanting splendour. After some considerable delay, it was at length announced that on the coming morning Samuel Taylor Coleridge would arrive in Bristol, as the nearest and most convenient port, 
and where he was to reside but a short time before the favouring gales were to waft him and his friends across the Atlantic. Robert Lovell at length introduced Mr. C. I instantly descried his intellectual character, exhibiting as he did an eye, a brow, and a forehead indicative of commanding genius. Interviews succeeded, and these increased the impression of respect. Each of my new friends read me his productions. Each accepted my invitations and gave me those repeated proofs of good opinion, ripening fast into esteem, that I could not be insensible to the kindness of their manners, which it may truly be affirmed infused into my heart a brotherly feeling that more than identified their interests with my own. I introduced them to several intelligent friends, and their own merits soon augmented the number, so that their acquaintance became progressively extended, and their society coveted. Bristol was now found a very pleasant residence, and though the ship was not engaged, nor the least preparation made for so long a voyage, still the delights and wide-spreading advantages of Pantisocracy formed one of their everlasting themes of conversation and considering the barrenness of the subject, it was in no common degree amusing to hear these young enthusiasts repel every objection to the practicality of their scheme, and magnify the condition to which it was to introduce them, where thorns and briars were no doubt to be expelled, and their couch to be strewed with down and roses. It will excite merely an innocent smile in the reader at the extravagance of a youthful and ardent mind when he learns that Robert Lovell stated with great seriousness that after the minutest calculations and inquiry among practical men, the demand on their labour would not exceed two hours a day, that is, for the production of absolute necessaries. The leisure still remaining might be devoted in convenient fractions to the extension of their domain by prostrating the sturdy trees of the forest where lop and top without cost would supply their cheerful winter fire and the trunks when cut into planks without any other expense than their own pleasant labour would form the styes for their pigs and the linnies for their cattle and the barns for their produce reserving their choicest timbers for their own comfortable log dwellings but after every claim that might be made on their manual labour had been discharged, a large portion of time would still remain for their own individual pursuits, so that they might read, converse, and even write books. Cooper, in an unpublished letter now before me, says, I know well that publication is necessary to give an edge to the poetic turn, and that what we produce in the closet is never a vigorous birth, if we intend that it should die there. For my own part, I could no more amuse myself with writing verse if I did not print it when written, than with the study of tactics for which I can never have any real occasion. But our young and ardent friend seemed to entertain a strong impression that the mere pleasure of writing, that is, like virtue, writing for its own sake, was all the mental and rational gratification wise men could desire. Views and times alter in these richly endowed young men in after-life were prompt, and among the first to confess the fallacious schemes of their youth. But at this time the pleasurable alone occupied their field of vision, and confidence never stood 
more unencumbered with doubt. If any difficulties were now started, and many such there were, a profusion of words demonstrated the reasonableness of the whole design, impressing all who heard with the conviction that the citadel was too strong for assault. The mercury at this time was generally Mr. Coleridge, who, as has been stated, ingeniously parried every adverse argument, and after silencing his hardy disputants, announced to them that he was about to write and publish a quarto volume in defence of pantisocracy, in which a variety of arguments would be advanced in defence of his system, too subtle and recondite to comport with conversation. It would then, he said, become manifest that he was not a projector raw from his cloister, but a cool, calculating reasoner, whose efforts and example would secure to him and his friends the permanent gratitude of mankind. From the sentiments thus entertained, I shall represent Mr. Coleridge in the section of his days which devolves on me to exhibit, just as he was, and that with a firm belief that by so doing, without injuring his legitimate reputation, I shall confer an essential benefit on those to come, who will behold in Mr. C. much to admire and imitate, and certainly some things to regret. For it should be remembered, Mr. Coleridge, from universal admission, possessed some of the highest mental endowments, and many pertaining to the heart. But if a man's life be valuable, not for the incense it consumes, but for the instruction it affords, to state even defects, in one like Mr. C., who can so well afford deduction without serious loss, becomes in his biographer not optional, but a serious obligation. It is proper additionally to remark that some apology or propitiation may be necessary toward those who regard every approximation to poverty not as a misfortune but a crime. Pecuniary difficulties, especially such as occur in early life and not ascribable to bad conduct, reflect no discredit on men of genius. Many of them subsequently surmounted their first embarrassments by meritorious exertion, and some of our first men, like travellers after having successfully passed through regions of privation and peril, delight even to recall their former discouragements. And without the shame that luxuriates alone in little minds, undisguisedly to tell of seasons indelible in their memories when, in the prostration of hope, the wide world appeared one desolate waste. But they ultimately found that these seasons of darkness, however tenaciously retained by memory, in better times often administered a new and refreshing zest to present enjoyment. Despair, therefore, ill becomes one who has follies to bewail and a god to trust in. Johnson and Goldsmith, with numerous others at some seasons, were plunged deep in the waters of adversity, but halcyon days awaited them, and even those sons of merit and misfortune, whose pecuniary troubles were more permanent, in the dimness of retrospection only stand out, invested in softer hues. Cervantes is not the less read because the acclamations of praise were heard by him in his abode of penury, 
Butler, Otway, Collins, Chatterton and Burns and men like them, instead of suffering in public estimation from the difficulties they encountered, absolutely challenge in every generous mind an excess of interest from the very circumstances that darkened the complexion of their earthly prospects. In corroboration of this remark, in our own day, the son of Crabbe, who must have cherished the deepest solicitudes for his father's reputation, has laid bare to general inspection his parents' early perplexities, by which impartial disclosures we behold the individual in his deepest depressions. Worth enriched by trial and greatness by a refining process, struggling successfully with adversity. Does the example of such a man nobly bearing up against the pressures that surrounded him inflict obduracy in our hearts? On the contrary, while we feelingly sympathise with the poet and deplore the tardy hand of deliverance, we pause only to transfer a reflex portion of praise to him whose magnanimous conduct has furnished so ample a scope for the tenderest emotions of our nature. This reflection will induce me not to withhold from false delicacy occurrences the disclosure of which none but the inconsiderate will condemn, and by which all the features of Mr. Coleridge's character will be exhibited to the inspection of the inquisitive and philosophical mind. I proceed, therefore, to state that the solicitude I felt, lest these young and ardent geniuses should in a disastrous hour, and in their mistaken apprehensions, commit themselves in this their desperate undertaking, was happily dissipated by Mr. Coleridge applying for the loan of a little cash. To pay the voyager's freight? Or passage? No. Lodgings. They all lodged at this time at number 48 College Street. Never did I lend money with such unmingled pleasure, for now I ceased to be haunted day and night with the spectre of the ship, the ship which was to effect such incalculable mischief. The form of the request was the following. My dear sir, can you conveniently lend me five pounds, as we want a little more than four pounds to make up our lodging bill, which is indeed much higher than we expected? Seven weeks, and Burnett's lodging for twelve weeks, amounting to eleven pounds. Yours affectionately, S. T. Coleridge. Till this time, not knowing what the resources of my young friends were, I could not wholly divest myself of fear but now an effectual barrier manifestly interposed to save them from destruction and though their romantic plan might linger in their minds it was impossible not to be assured that their strong good sense would eventually dissipate their delusions finding now that there was a deficiency in that material deemed of the first consequence in all civilised states, and remembering Burke's feeling lamentation over the improvidence, or rather the indifference, with which many men of genius regard the low thoughts that are merely of a pecuniary nature, I began to revolve on the means by which the two poets might advantageously apply their talents. Soon after, finding Mr. Coleridge in rather a desponding mood, I urged him to keep up his spirits, and recommended him to publish a volume of his poems. 
Oh, he replied, that is a useless expedient. He continued, I offered a volume of my poems to different booksellers in London who would not even look at them. The reply being, Sir, the article will not do. At length, one, more accommodating than the rest, condescended to receive my manuscript poems, and after a deliberate inspection, offered me for the copyright six guineas, which sum, poor as I was, I refused to accept. Well, said I, to encourage you, I will give you twenty guineas. It was very pleasant to observe the joy that instantly diffused itself over his countenance. Nay, I continued, others publish for themselves. I will chiefly remember you. Instead of giving you twenty guineas, I will extend it to thirty, and without waiting for the completion of the work, to make you easy, you may have the money as your occasions require. The silence and the grasped hand showed that at that moment one person was happy. End of extract. This recording is in the public domain.